Our scripture today is Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading with verse 41. And if you've been with us for a few weeks, you know that we've been going through Luke 1 and 2, and this concludes Luke chapter 2. And the next thing that we read is about Jesus beginning his public ministry. So please follow along as I read. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and at his answers. When his parents saw them, they were astonished. His mother said to him, what every mother says, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously serving for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and other people. I love to ask the question, why? Not, not the why questions that most people ask, but, but things like this. So why is this passage of Scripture here? And why is it only here? You don't read it this in Matthew. You don't read it in Mark or John, and all of them were witnesses to what God had done in Christ, sending his son, the incarnation, God becoming human flesh. Why is it Luke who says this, and why is it only Luke that says this? And why is an incident at age 12 important to us? So I'm going to give you Wayland's idea. Some of this I think fits completely with Scripture and complete with what we know in Scripture. And others of it, I just think this is the way it worked. Here's what we know. If you read the Gospel of Matthew about the birth of Jesus, you find that it is put in the setting of Joseph's life. It is, God, it is the angel who speaks to Joseph. It is the angel who says, get up and go to Egypt. It is the angel who says, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. So it is from Joseph's point of view. But when you look at Luke, and it is very obvious, it doesn't take great insight to understand this. 
Luke is written from Mary's point of view. There's a lot of things we don't know for a couple of reasons. One of them is Joseph died early, at least that's the assumption, by the time of the earthly ministry, by the time Jesus was 30, Joseph is no longer on the scene. Mary, of course, is there, but Joseph is not. So Matthew didn't have as much of being able to interview Joseph. We also know that Matthew was one of the 12 original disciples. Even Matthew was astonished at that. When you go back and you read through Matthew and you read about the calling of the 12, the calling of apostles, Matthew says, and he called Matthew the tax collector because a tax collector was about as unlikely a follower of God and a disciple of Jesus as anybody could be. And it was one of those things when you look at it and you say, who was surprised that Matthew was called to be a disciple? Well, the answer was Matthew was surprised. And probably his mother and his father were surprised. But like the other 10 disciples, only John lived to an old age and he was exiled. Like the other 10, Matthew died an early death because of his faith. But Luke, Luke became a believer later, after the crucifixion and the resurrection. And when he put his gospel together, it is very clear, he started asking people questions and started reading the accounts. And I assume interviewed Mary. How did all of this happen? And you can just about see it. This sounds as normal as it could be. Mary, I want to know everything you can tell me about Jesus. I want you to tell me how it was that you learned that you were going to give birth to the Son of God. I want to know how all of these things happened. And if you were interviewing Mary, wouldn't you ask this? What was he like as a boy? And my guess is that Mary said, well, he was like all the other boys. He liked to play, he liked to run, he liked to climb trees, he liked to learn from his father, he liked to hear stories, he liked to know what was happening in the community. He was like all the other boys. And can't you say, you hear Luke saying, but Mary, there must have been something that you would tell me about what he was like to be a boy. And, and Mary says, oh, there was one thing that you might be interested in. When he was 12, we went to Jerusalem. He didn't have to go until he was 13, but at 12, we took him with us. And we visited with our relatives and friends, and he hung out with the other boys. He had a great time. And when it was time for us to leave, we left. We didn't know that he didn't go with us because when we traveled, 
All of our relatives traveled together. All the people of Nazareth that traveled with us, we were in a big group and we visited with everybody and we caught up on all of the things that were happening with people around us. And when we came back, we just assumed he was with the other boys. But he wasn't with the other boys. And we headed back to Jerusalem. And when we found him, I asked him, what were you doing? And do you know what he said? He said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And his father and I were astonished. We didn't know what to say. But I remember this so well. So why is this here? It's here because Luke saw it as being significant to the gospel. And it is here because the Holy Spirit inspired it. Here's what I believe about the Word of God. All of it is God's Word. Every word counts. Every word matters. Every word is put exactly where it is supposed to be. Everything that is here is supposed to be here, and many things that we don't know are not here. But for example, by the way, this is the only account of the life of Jesus between the time he was about age two until he began his public ministry at age 30. The only account. Now, if you've read other accounts... Yes, there were people who, in my view, made up a lot of stuff about Jesus. He healed birds. He caught birds. He did all kinds of things. He, he astonished his friends with his magic tricks. But if you ever read any of those, you will say, that doesn't sound right to me. And you know why it doesn't sound right? Because it doesn't have the ring of truth to it. I love the words of a great theologian, by the name, Bible translator, by the name of J.B. Phillips. I read a book one time entitled The Ring of Truth. And here's what that's what he said. He said the gospel, when you open the scripture and you read the gospel, it has the ring of truth to it. And this has the ring of truth, and it is the word of God to us, and there is a message here for us. So what does it say? What does God want us to get from this passage of Scripture? Well, three things that I see that stand out in the Scripture. The first one is the importance of seeking God and obeying His commands. And who did that? Well, Joseph and Mary did that. They did that in response to the angels who came to them and told them what was going to take place. But they did it throughout their lives. Why are they in Jerusalem? Because the law says that every male is to go back to Jerusalem for the three great festivals, and Passover was one of them. Now, Mary didn't have to go. Her children didn't have to go. But that was often the way it was done, husbands and wives. And in this case, Jesus was the firstborn of Mary. She had four other sons. She had at least two daughters. We assume, that's the only way we should assume, 
that they were the children of Joseph. So they went up to to Jerusalem for the Passover. And this year, before they were required to do so at 13, Jesus would be accepted. It would be bar mitzvah. It would be the time for him to be considered a man, and he would go to Jerusalem. But he went the year before. Why are they doing that? They're doing it because the law tells them to do it. They are worshiping God because God wants them to worship him. And they go and they have the Passover meal and they celebrate and they go to the temple. Why did they go? Why did Jesus in the scripture, why did he go to the synagogue? Luke tells us he went to a synagogue as was his custom. If it was important for the Son of God to worship, God at the Passover in his father's house in the temple with his parents at the synagogue by himself and with his disciples in his public ministry, then no wonder the writer of Hebrews said to Christians, quit forsaking the assembling of yourselves together like is the practice of so many people. If the writer of Hebrews about A.D. 70 or so could write those words, boy, can we write those words. Quit forsaking the assembly of yourselves together. It is time for us to join with the family of God in worshiping God. It is time for us to sing praises to God. It is time for us to pray. It's time for us to Read the scripture. It's time for us to be serious about God. If it was important for Joseph and Mary to go to the Passover in their obedience to God, has God ever trusted anybody more than Mary and Joseph? Wouldn't it be hard to think of anybody, even in the roll call of faith that is found in Hebrews about the great people of God, is there anybody that God trusted more than Joseph and Mary? And what did Joseph and Mary do? They they learned Scripture. They lived by Scripture. They followed the word of the law, as was the custom of godly people in their day They worship God. If they did those things, how much more should you and I do those things? Man, I've got all kinds of uh, encouragement for you and all kinds of things we want to influence you with. I hope the first on the top of your list is I am going to be faithful to the family of God and the people of God and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this year. And I'm going to do things differently. I hope you'll get into the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12, which you have on your sermon sheet and on the screen, tells us that the Word of God is quick and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And then it describes that it that it penetrates deep within 
who we are. It's kind of hard to know, even in the context. What does the writer mean about the Word of God? Does he mean this? Does he mean the spoken Word of God? Does he mean Christ himself, who is the Word of God and speaks to our hearts? Maybe he means all three. The point is this. We need to be open to God and hear God speaking and leading in our lives and responsive to what God wants to say to us. When you are convicted of sin, don't push that away. When you are impressed to do something that is right before God, don't push that away. Isn't that what Jesus meant when he said, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house, that I was compelled to do so, that I was prompted to do so? Let God prompt you to do good and to do right. Let God prompt you, showing you when, when you need to say, God, is there something in my life you're not pleased with? Is there something in my life you want me to start doing? We need to hear from the Word of God and obey the Word of God as it shows us and tells us to obey Him and to follow his commands. There's a second thing here that, that I find very helpful and very meaningful, and that is the beauty of humility. I talked about something that's important. Number three is something that's valuable, but number two is something that's beautiful. And humility is beautiful in a person's life. That's what we see in Mary and Joseph. Humility. That they were, they were open to God. They recognized that they were simply servants of the Lord God. That God, for only the reasons that God would know, had chosen them to give Mary to give birth to the Son of God and Joseph to raise the Son of God and teach him about life and about manhood. Think of that. And yet, they were humble people. They went to worship. They did not demand. They did not expect anything from God. They, they recognized something that, God, that Jesus said later in his ministry. He talked about being simply worthless servants. He talked about what a servant did. A servant didn't work all day and come in and sit down. A, work, a servant worked all day and then came in and served his master and did not expect anything other than to say, we are worthless servants and we serve because we have a master. Joseph and Mary were humble people. But do you know somebody else that's humble? And we don't see it anywhere else. The teachers of the law in the temple are shown by this to have been humble. Now, you and I don't expect that. I don't, I don't expect anything good from a Pharisee. I don't expect anything good from a scribe. We, we do have a few people in Scripture, in the gospel, where we see them as being humble people submitting unto God, but for the most part, they are proud and happy about themselves, and they love to lord it over other people. Jesus used those exactly words. 
those exact words. And he said, the Gentiles lord it over others, but you are not to be that way. You're to be gentle and humble. You're to be a servant. You are to give rather than to be given to. And in this passage of scriptures, the teachers of the law are humbled before Jesus. It is a beautiful thing that we read. As I'm preparing the sermon this week, I I thought to myself, what would be the the words that I would say that would just come to the the forefront of my mind? You know, we do that with a lot of ways. What 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 first comes to your mind about humility? And so these four things. And after I looked at it a while, I thought to myself, would I be the only one who would ever think about these things in humility? But this is the way I see it. The first thing is humility is is teachable. To be humble is to be teachable. It's to understand that, that we need to learn from other people, and we need to learn from God, that we need to learn from people who have gone before us, that we need to learn from people who have been through similar circumstances in life, that we need to listen to people when they give us their testimony of how they came to faith in Christ. We need to learn from them. When they talk about humility and forgiveness and love, we need to learn from people. We need to be teachable. As we, that little phrase we all like to use in a former life, I was a professor of Old Testament and Hebrew. And, and I loved it. I wouldn't go back and do it for anything in the world, but I loved it. And we would... We dealt with master's students, and we met with Ph.D. students. And the Ph.D. students would get to meet with certain of the faculty committees, and basically here were the ground rules. The four of us get to ask you anything we want to ask. And if you don't have the right answer, this is not a good day. And uh, everybody in their right mind should have been scared to death of that day. I remember the day I did that. I was seated on this side with my back to the wall, little fireplace behind me, and here were four people that I knew and respected who had the opportunity to ask anything they want to ask. And what they always ask was open-ended questions. A two-hour oral exam that probably had four or five questions to it. Tell us Mr. Bailey, tell us what you know about the history of Israel from the time of Moses until the end of Malachi. So I was happy when the day I turned around from having my back to the wall to be on this side and getting to ask those questions. And when I got on this side and asked those questions, For the first time in my life, I saw a painting on that wall. And I had to look at it and think about it. You know what the painting was? The painting was from Luke chapter 2 that had a picture of the teachers 
of the law, being instructed by the boy, Jesus. And in my way of thinking, that is, I, I wondered, who put that up there? Probably a president who wanted to say, this is who we're going to be as an institution, that we're going to be humble before God. Humble person is teachable. Humble person honors God, puts God where he belongs, understands that we are worthless servants, that we are only servants and we have a master and we honor him and we exalt him and we lift him up in life. What, what does a humility look like? It looks, humility looks for blessings. It doesn't look for curses. It looks for blessings. It tries to count your many blessings. Of all I love the passage. Of all places, it's in Lamentations. Lamentations tells us that God's mercies are new every morning. God's blessings are new every morning. And it's an encouragement that we look for those blessings. And humility looks for blessings. Humility gives thanks. It exalts God. It doesn't look for what we have to be angry about, but what we have to be thankful for. And about the goodness and the greatness of God. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable, meaning you, you just can't fathom the greatness and the goodness of God. And that psalm is a psalm that we should quote and remember and, and put into our lives and let it consume us, that we look for the blessings of God and we give thanks for the goodness of God in humility is at the very heart of what we find in this passage. But there's a third thing, and that is the value of growing daily with God. Not growing weekly with God, but growing daily with God. That's why they went to Jerusalem. They were going to hear about God. They're going to hear about the goodness of God. Do you know what they were going to do? They were going to remember the blessings of God, how God had brought them out of Egypt crossed the sea, given them manna in the wilderness, given them the law of the Lord, given them the tabernacle, brought them into the land of Israel and gave them the land. It was a whole week of remembering the blessings of God. And you and I, and that's what they were doing. They were growing daily with God. I love verses 51 and 52. If you read Luke, you read a lot of summaries. I love Luke for that. Love Luke summarized things. Luke took something that was this long and he made it this size. And he gave you the heart of everything. I love that. You read Acts and you read summaries again and again. What happened in the church? The church grew. It increased in knowledge and wisdom. You get a summary. Verses 51 and 52 is a summary. And what Luke is doing is he is saying, here's, here's the birth of Jesus. This is when he was 12, and this is what happened until he began his public 
ministry. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to his parents. You know the things I haven't talked about in here? It's the things we often talk about that I think it doesn't really matter. Some people say, why did they lose Jesus? Well, they lost Jesus for the same reasons that every now and then you, you have to start searching for a child. They didn't lose him out of neglect. You know what else we, we ask? We, well, why did Jesus say to his mother, Mom, however he would have called her, didn't you know I was going to be in my father's house? He wasn't being disobedient. In fact, Luke makes that very clear. He went down to, to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. But what happened to Jesus? Well, he grew intellectually, grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. Remember, he's 12. He's about to be 13. I often think that what Luke was asking, what Luke may have asked Mary was, Mary, what I really want to know is, what was Jesus like as a teenager? How did you handle that? My mother one time after I was grown, she looked at me. I remember right where I was standing when she told me this. I thought, my sweet mother telling me this. She said, when you were 14, I thought by the end of the year, one of us was not going to be alive. <laughs> so can't you imagine Luke saying, tell us what Jesus was like. Well, he grew in wisdom. He grew physically. He grew in relationship to the Father who is in heaven. And he grew in relating to other people. God wants us to grow daily in Him. And I want to ask you, I'm always asking you to do something. And remember, my job is to influence you in doing those things that are good and godly. I want to ask you to do this. Would you make a commitment? God, I want to grow in you this year. And I want to grow daily in you, and I want to be in your word, and I want to think about you. Would you take the next few minutes? This is what we call the invitation. It's a, an invite on our part. It's an invite on the part of the church. It's an invite on the part of the Holy Spirit. I know, I know what it's like to sit there. I've been there. I understand that. I know at this point, here's kind of what you do. You kind of do this and, and you close up shop. It's easy to do. I want to ask you, don't do that today. But think with me. More importantly, pray with me. God, how do you want me to grow this year? God, how do you want me to become like you? God, how do you want me to grow in Christ-likeness to become like Christ? So there are two things that you can really do in the next few minutes. You can sing, and it would be praises unto God, and you can pray. 
God, what would you like me to do? And what matters to you in my life? And how do I grow daily like you? So stand with me, please, and give us a few minutes. And then in just a few minutes, we get to pray for the deacons as well. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your deep and abiding love for us. God, God, you've heard me pray this. I want to pray it again. Is there anything in my life with which you're not pleased? Is there anything that I should be doing that I'm not doing? God, how do you want me to grow? How do you want me to take the next steps for your honor and your glory? God, please speak to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.